Oh yeah, it's time for another podcast. Welcome to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm your host. I'm the weird guy that's named Disco Posse. If you are into anything at all around understanding the energy sector, how we can tackle problems with billing and consumption and even really big global issues that you may have a real vested interest in what we can do, this is a show for you. This is Jesson Bradshaw. He's the CEO and founder of Energy Ogre. They're doing really fantastic stuff around using technology to bring down consumer level billing and find optimal ways to use and, and bill for power and consumption. But much more than just that, we get into a really good deep conversation on the impact of energy, the technology problems, the regulation battle and deregulation challenges. No matter where you are on your level of knowledge, this is a great masterclass on exactly some of the challenges and really good ways that we can affect the, the world. And speaking of masterclasses, I got to give a masterclass shout out to the folks that make this podcast happen, including the amazing team over at Veeam Software, because you want a masterclass in data protection and data recovery. Hey, it's not just about saving the stuff. You got to be able to bring it back. So you uh, got ransomware worries? Mm, not if you got Veeam. You got data protection worries for your cloud? Mm, not if you got Veeam. You're losing your physical servers because they lost power? Mm, not a problem. If you got Veeam, recover that bad boy to the cloud. There really is a ton of ways that you can protect your data, protect your online assets, protect your teams, all sorts of crazy stuff. SaaS, Office 365, just because it's in the cloud doesn't mean it's protected. In fact, just means it's someone else's data center. So if you want to get that stuff protected, which you should, head on over to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Let them know that you came from here and they just got great products. So go check it out, vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. And if you want to protect yourself along the way, make sure you protect your data in transit by using a VPN. I'm a big fan for a variety of you know privacy protection and data protection and identity protection, as well as just great for testing and neat stuff in tech. So if you want to go to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash Disco Posse, you can join me on protecting yourself. All right, this is Justin Bradshaw. Love the show, and I hope you do too. Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Bradshaw, and I'm the founder of Energy Ogre, and you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. It's always the perfect. I know I, I can begin when I hear that. <laughs> it's like the little on air light goes on on a TV camera. Like, All perfect. Right, we're live. Uh, so, Jason, thank you very much. This is really, really exciting for me and for all of our listeners because we're going to talk about something that's a it's a it's a big issue and it has a very local impact, not just regional. It's kind of an anywhere in the world thing, but energy is a challenge you know in so many aspects but you founded energy ogre you've got a great personal and business story if you want to give a quick sort of introduction for folks that are new to you jessen and then we'll dive into what you and the team are are solving sure well uh like i said my name is justin bradshaw and i uh 
I've been in the power industry, electricity specifically. You know, energy is such a broad category. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and electricity touches a lot of things because we use, you know, historically a lot of different kinds of fuels. And so I was very fortunate to start my career a long, long time ago, um, not in a galaxy far away, but here uh, in Houston. And uh, when I first started, it was when the, the federal at the federal level in the United States, everything was unbundling. So so there was a push to deregulate um, some of the, the structure at the wholesale level. And that meant, you know, it was easier for people to build power plants uh, opportunistically to try to solve issues. It meant that, um, you know, it was easier for folks to build pipeline capacity to move gas from one place to the other. So this was all happening, um, you know, right in the run up to some of the tech boom in the 90s. And, you know, it was the most recent form of deregulation. Some some folks that are, you know, my age and older might remember when the airlines deregulated and, you know, change the face of the industry. Uh, and then we had, uh, you know, telecommunications deregulation where all of a sudden it was way less expensive to call somebody on the other side of the country. I don't, I don't know that I actually pay long distance charges anymore on my cell phone. So, so there's, you know, th these types of things, when you bring in competition and you kind of get rid of some of the stodgy structure, it does, uh, leave a lot of room for an explosion in innovation. And that's kind of what we've seen in the power business specifically, really over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. And it's it's really interesting because the pace of that change, um, you, you, you'd sort of think like the airline business, it kind of got to its steady states and you had low cost carriers and the telecommunications business, you have some of these big players, but the pace of change in, in electricity specifically, it continues to accelerate. And so a lot of that is uh, th this business does a very good job of uh, integrating and adopting emergent other technologies. Um, and so it's a, it's a really kind of a neat place to be. Um, I'm super fortunate to be in an industry that's just as intellectually challenging and, and as exciting as it was when I first started. So, but uh, specifically what Energy Ogre does is we in Texas, the vast majority of the population centers here, we opened our market to retail competition in 2002. And we have a multitude of different suppliers and different people you can choose your products and all different kinds of rate plans. If you want a time of use plan, if you know, it's very much the old, you know, those commercials used to be Burger King, have it your way. There's just a multitude <laughs> yeah. of different kinds of options and everyone consumes electricity slightly different. And so there's room to really assist people um, to assess how they use electricity and then either figure out what's being offered available in the marketplace or to solicit a specific offer for them that's tailored to how they use electricity. And it's it's utilizing some of these emergent technologies that didn't exist even you know 10 years ago in, in the space. So it's, it's a lot of fun. When, and this is the interesting thing that there were there's kind of like two sides. It's like a, a layered marketplace in effect, right? In that every stage of from production to, uh, you know, metering it out and being able to then consume it uh, at a large group and then consolidate billing. And then from there to be able to look at optimization, we introduce like, so as you get closer from consumer to producer, there are a few different points at which there's optimization opportunities. 
But it was challenging for a long time, of course, like you said, regulation and, and then deregulation. We really, as a society, we get hung on this sort of like, it's either completely free and scary, you know, like free is in like unbounded. Right. Versus, you know, tightly regulated, which really limits innovation. So I love this idea of a bounded free market. Like we have to have some some trigger, some kind of a you know a breaker in place to protect distinct and, and weird edge cases where things can get out of control, where the consumer is definitely on the wrong side of you know what could happen. You know, yeah. But I think we've lived through each side of that swing. We saw yeah. what tight regulation led to, which was disturbing pricing. You know. <laughs> and lack of transparency. Then we had, well, I won't even mention the most obvious name when it comes to energy production and, and reselling that we lived through that, you know, changed the face of what we think about, you know, what led to understanding what mark to market is and like selling energy futures, right? Which was a, when it got to the consumer layer was risky. So now we've lived through both sides of that scary world and we're landing, and this is where I, I love where Energy Ogre is, is sitting, is you've got this opportunity now, and the tools are so different, yep. right? Like in the 90s, in the aughts, I guess, as we call them, the 2000s, right? <laughs> there were the technology needed to be able to do what you and the team are doing was just wasn't even there. And now... It's it's a beautiful opportunity as far as I'm concerned, right? And I'm, that's why I loved your story and, and, and what you're able to do. Yeah, it, it's super interesting. If you go back and look at the 90s and, you know, the, the I think, you know, the, the items that you're talking about sort of leading up to the California energy crisis, that was a really interesting time because, you know, for a lot of different reasons and certainly the public's perception of what happened is it's interesting you know, like everything else it's some of these things are a little bit nuanced but one of the things that really kind of happened is in the run-up to these markets opening there's very little investment made in infrastructure and you know that's one of the things that's a recurring theme that we see over and over again as a as a precipitate for us having you know ongoing kind of crises we saw that in california um you know in 1999 2000 2001 when it really kind of reached its zenith. Um, but, you know, there had been a, an absolute lack of, I mean, I can't remember any material new power generation facilities were built in the state of California for a lot of years. And this was yeah. happening in the run-up to the technology boom. This was happening in the 90s, the go-go. And, you know, so we, were, we had this massive load growth uh, and we were, we, we were really not keeping up with it. And so you kind of had this, in order to get to some of these outcomes, you really have to have a confluence of a lot of these these factors that, you know, it's like a wave that they keep adding to one another and they end up getting to these large outcomes that that uh, that, you know, are, are unfortunate. And, you know, unfortunately, they're somewhat foreseeable, um, but they're complicated and uh, they defy simple explanation and simple solutions sometimes. So. But, you know, the, the interesting thing, I think, when we, we think about electricity is one of the things when I talk to people all the time, you know, we tend to think of our electricity and how we buy electricity and how it's used, especially at the retail level. And, you know, obviously how we deal with this and how we produce it and, you know, what kind of generation we use is a different animal. It works hand in glove. But 
Uh, the average consumer, a lot of the customers that deal with that we you know help on a day to day basis, you know, they try to apply their experience in buying other things to electricity. And power is a weird thing because it's you know it's the only commodity, quasi commodity. It's produced, distributed, and consumed instantaneously. And we, there's nothing else we really buy that way, maybe, uh, maybe other than data. Uh, but we don't think about it that way. It's a hundred percent, hundred percent ethereal, right? So you know we don't. And this is an issue we run into time and time again with our customers not understanding that. Uh, or some of our customers are understanding that there's no difference between the power that one provider delivers versus another provider because it's all in the exact same infrastructure. It's the, truly one of the only fungible products the, that you can get. So a lot of the experience that we have is to say, hey, yeah, I like to go to Costco or Sam's Club and I may end up buying more than I need, but I can get a better deal if I buy more of it or if I go with other people and we buy in bulk. Right. And so there's this idea that you can do the same thing with electricity. And, you know, the funny thing about electricity is, you know, we don't really have any. I mean, there's there's some other ways to convert other forms of energy back into electricity. But generally speaking, our storage capacity for all of our infrastructure is essentially non-existent. So we whatever is being required, you know, the sum total of everybody's demand right now is being produced right now and so with very little deviation in order to maintain some of the quality and standards from frequency and you know voltage you know it, it like literally if we're changing uh an air conditioning unit on this building and it spools up then there's a some generation that's moving somewhere in order to accommodate that so you can't buy more than you're using so there's no real there's no bulk there, you know <laughs> These ideas that some folks have, and it's just, it's hard to, you know, it's, it's just this very strange thing that doesn't really behave or act like anything else that we're normally used to buying. So um, it does present, you know, some challenges for folks when we're starting to move towards really bringing some of the innovation into this particular area for people. Well, and this is, it's funny when you say this, right? You think that this we are able to sell a commodity that didn't exist if we didn't create it right or we didn't consume it right it's <laughs> it's a very matrix like sort of right. <laughs> thought process right if you didn't there is it, no spoon yeah. Yeah. There is there, yeah it is it is really interesting and also the like you said it, it is truly a, an an equal an equal price commodity regardless of provider the there is an interesting thing that's going a lot around sort of the sustainability story and folks in this, uh, I got into through some folks at work and we're talking about this idea of the megawatt, right? Like if, if you do not consume something, in fact, you're increasing the amount that's not being generated. So there's to consume one watt requires three watts of generation because in order to have it reach my service point, my consumption point, the amount of stored energy required to deliver it to you know traverse the, the the physical infrastructure so there is an interesting thing on the consumption versus impact of generation a whole podcast unto itself onto that uh but i think well, people I th are at least are becoming because they're thinking more about sustainability they're becoming more aware of that and then it allows you to then go 
what's my direct consumer impact and what can I do both for my own bottom line as well as for you know at least my my near network of of consumers and and what can we do to make this better yeah i mean it's a, it's an excellent observation i think that what you're really hitting on are the two i think really macro scale trends of what we're likely to continue to see and both of these are out of reach outside of of technological innovation and that's why there's still room to run the first is you know power has this weird aspect to it right so we we tend to just consume it and we don't pay that much attention to it unless it's not there like it, it is a background type of thing and at the same time you know uh, i've heard it said and it's absolutely true that the sum total is totality of our modern way of life is dependent upon reliable electricity and that we we use it for everything we can't li really live in cities and Every, the way we've organized society is highly dependent upon reliable electricity supply. But one of the problems that's existed, and this is this transition from the, the regulated um, structure into some of these more innovative structures is in the old days, a utility would look out five to 10 years ahead of time. And there was not really a negative aspect of saying we need to plan for growth and we need to plan for all these. So there may be uh, a misallocation of capital or misallocation of resources, but it was done to have, you know, over over redundancy in some of the infrastructure and some of these types of things. So there was. Okay. And, and so what happened is, is the consumers paid for this. They couldn't really see what that premium was. But, you know, there's a there's a, a significant premium there just because of the incentives and the structure of the way that all works to try to maintain, um, you know, the a kind of a big brother looking out for everything. And, you know, as we transition into some of these more, uh, you know, we start to bring more and more technology and what it allows us to really solve for a problem that we never were able to solve for in power before. Power's always had this very strange aspect where it, it has price inelasticity of demand in real time. So people can't see and they don't make they don't make any changes to their consumption behavior depending upon what's actually happening at the wholesale level to produce it. Because they have a tariff structure, they pay a volumetric rate, it doesn't matter when that's actually happening. And so there's always been this very large disjoint between what's happening at the wholesale level from a supply perspective and what the retail consumer is paying and the formula through which they pay. And so there's been this balancing act that has existed. And what's happening now is, you know, you don't get that. Um, let's say we are in a large industrial application. Let's say we we're a large food processor or a steel mill or somebody like that. A lot of our incentives to consume, uh, we might have, hey, I, I need these are my critical kinds of demands. These are my critical loads and they may be, you know, accounted for in a certain way. But oftentimes they'll say, hey, I, you know, I want to get the benefit of consuming when wholesale prices are lower. So they may have a, a, a structure in there where they're incented to change their consumption behavior or they optimize around how much they're using during certain periods of time. To, to mirror the cost to actually deliver that commodity to them. So that they're introducing, you know, we've seen this on the industrial side and, and, it's, and it's trickled into the commercial side as well with buildings and other kind of large retail or you know, uh, commercial properties. 
that we, we start to introduce some of this price elasticity of demand. And, and that's kind of the new threshold of what we're seeing today. You know, I know a lot of utilities have time of use types of uh, rates that are the very, very, you know, beginning of a baby step associated with trying to incent that behavioral change to coincide with the way, you know, our resources are producing absent us having some massive storage infrastructure. So this is where all the IOT of things and, and all of this ability to bridge into looking at a smart home and integrating those systems and really trying to optimize around minimization of footprint, minimization of actual energy use, minimization of waste. And, you know, we see that from water through electricity to natural gas. And so this is this next big, super exciting, you know, emergent piece that's that's happening there. And then, you know, on the opposite side, on the wholesale side, we have all of these new types of, well, they're not new, but uh, we're getting to a point where the material science and the, the advances in the technology around wind generation and uh, the efficiency associated with solar cells and the cost to produce solar cells. And then, you know, eventually I'm sure we'll have some type of macro scale tidal energy and all these other kinds of, of uh, emergent renewable technologies. You know, that's kind of an interesting tract in and of itself because, you know, I have this very interesting idea of how that might all play out over time, irrespective of what the political and the social demands are. I think that some of those technologies will win on a heads up basis on economics in the long run. Well, this is, I, th I think of like what Kahneman and Tversky did for, by introducing the concept of behavioral economics where you now had behavioral psychologists who were winning a Nobel Prize for economics. I think the next real opportunity, the next real wave in true energy reduction won't be from the energy sector. In a way, it will be somebody outside of it who has this like go back to first principles, go back to a lot of these things. And you could see it even in sort of car production, what Elon Musk and is doing, you know, both in, you know, in Tesla, as well as even with SpaceX, going back to saying like, I know you're telling me it cost me this much to make a battery, but if I went back to first principles and I said, this is the manufacturing cost by material basis. So I've got a bill of materials. My, my bomb is X. And if I can affect the way we produce it, then my cost of production is now asymptotically close to the cost of materials. And then its whole goal is then to optimize that in between, which most people will say like, no, this is just what it costs to make a battery because this is the way we make batteries today. Right. So I think in energy, like social and political are kind of the riskiest things to believe are going to get us out of this. Yeah, and, they tend um, to be, they I'll get lambasted for saying that, I'm sure, but it's like there's nothing wrong with having an understanding of the impact and being able to take a personal impact to our our you know our legislators and such. But in the end, they are they're not going to legislate us to success. They will legislate us potentially from failure. Some may even question that, right? Yeah, I mean, there's no question about that, and I think that. 
you're right. I, I'm, I think what will happen is, is that as we solve more complicated problems, what ends up happening is that you really do have to have a diversity of disciplines that kind of converge around a solution. So you're a hundred percent right. I don't know that in the traditional power generation industry, someone's going to be able to pull all the pieces together to build, you know, highly integrated, you know, smart home types of, of solutions. I also don't think that straight technology companies are able to do that either because they don't fully understand how the wholesale power markets work. And, and as a result, what those impacts will be on the providers that are, that are sourcing that power to the, to the homeowners themselves. And, and there's, you know, in the US and in Canada, we kind of have a patchwork quilt, like in Alberta, we've got, you know, we're open to competition in Ontario, we are and then other places we're not. Same is true in the United States. In lots of parts of Texas, we are in some parts of the Northeast, we are kind of quasi open to competition. But other places, it's just, you know, uh, we're back into a regulated monopoly structure. And so the solutions are different in all these different places. There, there is not a one size fits all for the consumer. And there certainly is not a one size fits all in terms of the goal uh, that you're trying to meet because there are, you know, regional energy markets. We have different, you know, uh, different resource mix associated with the different utilities that are serving these customers. So I, I think it's this this diversity of, of these disciplines that are able to come together because, you know, these are hard, these are hard problems. And so I think that it's, it, these, these are still, they still exist uh, because they are hard to solve, but now we're able to do a better job of, of, of getting the right kinds of people and collaborating the right ways and using some of these emergent technologies to bridge some of these gaps that were, you know, a chasm in the past that they're, they're achievable today. Well, and if you think of the ideal part of a f of the free market and the tech tech ecosystem, is that we can have startups that can come in and say, "I can I can focus on a specific problem. I can achieve whether it's you know local optima or global optima, like whatever the the place where they can do this. They themselves can net a, a, a revenue benefit from it in doing so, and effectively we have a three-sided win at that point you know yeah, plus you, you plus you empower and employ people while you're at it too doing it which is exciting yeah it's this disorganized scaffold that's being built you know to help you achieve that solution it's not a centrally planned it's an economically organized individual self-interest finding a solution to a problem that you're able to you know at some point it gets close enough that you can find a max you know maximum solution yeah, that's a. It's a big problem. You, you, you. What makes Jessen say, "I'm going to take on a huge problem"? <laughs> what what drew you to this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm super excited about the you know demand management, demand response side of the equation because, you know, since I got in this business in the mid '90s, everyone talked about it. You know, it was, oh, we're, you know, we're going to get there. We're going to do all these things. And the solutions that were offered up were like, hey, um, I want to give you a $20 annual credit to interrupt your air conditioner in the middle of the summertime. You know, like these totally uneconomic types of <laughs> solutions that either in. And so there's no there's no feedback loop that says, hey, you know, if you can reduce your consumption, if you can eliminate your consumption, here's an economic incentive for you to do so. But that information travels so fast 
And it's so hard for some, you know, and a consumer has a hard time sometimes translating how much reduction their individualized behavior will have with the different, um, you know, resources that they have in their home. So I'm super excited about, you know, how we've gotten to, uh, you know, device level connectivity in the home. You know, so many of the manufacturers are building, you know, new appliances that, that connect with one another that have, you know, a form of internet connectivity that have the ability to do remote scheduling and things of that nature. So that threshold is pretty close. I get excited about it because we do that um, for our customers already. We optimize their energy plans around the way they consume. And it's exciting to consider adding a different dimension where we can start to not only optimize around, you know, who's providing their power based upon their consumption, but also to start to to look at how can we help help them make better decisions around what what to consume and when to consume, and, you know, in in order to you know really maximize the the cost reductions for them. And so that's it's it's an add on to what we've been doing, um, you know, for the last seven or eight years here, and it's it's pretty exciting. So I, that's you know no one's really been able to do it. Uh, there's a lot of 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 um, People that talk about it, and it's been a hot topic in the industry for forever. Um, it's hotter now than it's been in a very, very long time. But most of the solutions are not commercial solutions, they're technical solutions. And so if you're not adding the economic behavior and the commercial aspect to these transactions, that's one of the problems that's doomed these efforts uh, in the past. And now we, we actually have, because we have a dynamic retail and wholesale marketplace in some of our markets it allows us to start to, to to take that next step and you know i'm excited about it well because look anybody who's listening let's just be honest right when every single appliance you own has that sticker on it and it's the first thing you peel off is the kilowatt hours that are consumed by it you don't think about how often you put stuff in the dryer how often you run the dishwasher like that information is there because it has to be like there's a regulatory requirements for the manufacturer to produce it and it's supposed to helpfully guide like if you say oh this one washer is better than another because it's but in the end it's there's the reality when your family starts spilling more stuff on the tablecloth then you got to do more washes than you planned whatever number you saw in the stores is meaningless and that means that we need a solution where we are truly seeing active demand that can then be understood and then optimized to, as you said, the most important thing is create a commercial benefit for those demand consumers to change the patterns of use. And this is the biggest thing, because if we, you know, we see the bill go up and we hear about inflation and, and a lot of people, they just think, the cost of doing business and it's like no no it's we could do better <laughs> and that's why i love that you're like you present here's first of all the best calculator ever right when you go to anybody that's like you know see your power consumption is even to get for like tax rebates it's like looking at a wall of fields and forms and this and and people can't do it your your intake on your your website is fantastic it's like super easy to use and they immediately see like okay where do i fit 
you've really taken the best of that, like make it easy for people to understand, make it easy for them to see the benefit and then bring them to the benefit, which benefits many people because now by doing this, you are now able to affect more so than that just individual person because we're potentially having a community level good that can be applied by what a large group of any energy ogre users can can do i think it's i appreciate that and we've spent a lot of time trying to do to do just what you were describing to simplify this process as much as possible because you know we have a ton we have we serve a slice of our communities in texas right so we have everyone from the folks that are you know on a pension retired from you know whatever it might be just enjoying their their time to you know i have folks that are uh you know actuaries and they're gonna they want to you know look over these things and you know some of the early technology adopters uh you know super focused on how the how these things work and so we try to organize our information in, in this idea of a layer of an onion so you can go as deep as you want to get down into the weeds on different stuff but we don't really expect that most people will want to do that so we can cater to everybody but one of the interesting lessons learned for me is when we first started energy ogre i would say the vast majority of our user base when we first got going were the early technology adopters like man this is cool you guys can pull my smart meter information and you're you're doing all this it's just it was kind of light years ahead of what folks were doing beforehand and what we found is that there's a there's a real issue to contend with where people get excited about things and they want to get focused on things and they're on board with things but ultimately our time competes uh you know for other things and even if you're highly interested and highly motivated we see people's real desire to get in the weeds on a continuous basis that kind of mitigates over time and we get to this kind of end state anyway so the goal here has been to say it's all there we will do all this work let me describe to you how we're doing what we're doing but the the, the goal here has been to simplify this process while maintaining the maximum benefit that we can by really being consumer focused and it's about these incentives and how can we how can we you know find the right kinds of provider irrespective of you know what the name on the on the door is it doesn't really matter um you know do we have these guys that will be you know in business is that you know so we're trying to make sure that we minimize those costs and now that we can get to a point where we can say hey you may want to look at real-time prices there was a company that doesn't uh, I don't think they're still doing business here. Their their product got uh, outlawed uh, post February or severely restricted. But there was a company here who was selling a product that was indexed to what we call the balancing energy market, which is basically the wholesale market of last resort. And the tons of people were all excited about it, like, "Hey, I'm going straight to wholesale." And like, well, 95% of the wholesale activity actually happens before this market of last resort but you had folks that were like hey i really want to change i want to be very price sensitive and change my consumption behavior and they can get very focused on that you know in the beginning and then after two or three months it's kind of a drag to be watching real-time prices and you're hoping that they're sending you alerts that something has happened and so there are a lot of people that want to do some of these things the key is 
to automate as much of this as you possibly can because it's just it's too complex it's just like any you know if i were to look at a control system for an industrial process you don't have individual people in each one of those sections you have a lot of automations and there's there's a program that that takes into consideration these issues and it makes those kinds of decisions and so that's that's kind of where we are in the forefront of this too but it is interesting to me that a lot of the folks that are super in the weeds uh you know they get there's there's diminishing utils associated with their time yeah <laughs> over well, time it, it's the same like Taxes is a perfect example, right? Even if you really nerd out on the fantastic stuff you can do to like optimize your tax, you know, benefit, we do it once a year. Most people, even if they learn, they're like, you know, if you did this every month, you could continuously find like in quarter ways that you could gain benefit. Like that's what accountants do. That's what accounting systems begin to do. You give them the ability, like so no matter how intensely excited you are that you got a brand new, you know, whatever, whatever system you happen to have, you know, for Christmas or for your birthday or as a family gift for, you know, something, you're excited about it for a little while. And then eventually the goal of all these is like you put it on the wall and you set it and then it takes care of things for you. And you're like, well, maybe not necessarily. And there, there's more set to include. So that's why I'm with you. Like creating systems is much better than creating local immediate excitement about the benefit. Because if you don't put a system around it, when you take your eyes off it, it just goes back to flatline. Yeah, you, you, you don't have the repeatability that you need to have in order to really make these things commercial solutions. And this is an interesting because like you said before, and we talked about just before we got started, right, is that there's a sort of political discussions that get wrapped around the way that power gets produced and regulated and whatever. And but in the end, the dollars per watt that are charged don't care whether you what the letter is beside your voting stamp. <laughs> you pay the same regardless of where you where you you check the checkbox or or punch the divot, whatever it's going to be. I, I'm I'm Canadian, so I don't even know. We we have different things we do up there, but sure, uh, sure. You know, but I'm in the United States, and so I've actually got acute awareness of both sides of the market, and it's it's intense, right? I'm in New Jersey, which is like wildly different than where I was. I was in Toronto in when I was in Canada, and I lived in Vancouver. So even like the local aspects of power were very much sort of guided by the uh, well, not le not political but more like the the moral principles of the community so vancouver west coast much more geared towards green much more geared towards you know just leaving a lot more to the government to like let's let's get the right people in government and let them make good decisions for us and and we'll just we'll make sure they make them you know and we'll we'll empower them through our vote on the east coast it's much more like nope uh i i want to control this from end to end uh you know i'm in toronto 25 percent of the population lives within a 100 kilometer border and so we consume more power than anybody else thus we need to get cheaper power very different guiding principles but in the end so like locally it would be dealt with differently this is why again what i love like using systemized 
approaches and using technology and systems together that are independent of locale, provider. This is why I really, really dig that you, you I think, are in the perfect sweet spot of where you can affect the outcome. Well, it's super interesting what you're talking about because, you know, a lot of, you know, we, we try to say there's a, you know, we need to have these types of technologies and these things have to, and we have to get rid of these other ones. And we really have to look at, you know, not every location has the same opportunity for all these different technologies. Uh, you know, a good example of that is in, in BC, British Columbia, you know, serving the areas of Vancouver and the rest of the province. There's a tremendous uh, natural resource there in the form of hydroelectric generation that's been harnessed for a very long period of time. And the same is true of the Pacific Northwest along the Columbia River. There's, you know, hydroelectric facility after hydroelectric facility. And so there is a, a huge a capacity to generate green energy or renewable energy in those locations. And that's been done for a very, very long time. And the reason for that is that the fuel is free. And so there's a capital investment in infrastructure and then, you know, your fuel uh, falls out of the sky on a seasonal basis and, you know, you get to you get to get, you know, free electricity. And it was so big in in the uh, in the Western United States that, you know, Bonneville Power Administration, which is on the U.S. side, handles a lot of the the, the uh, dams that are or the hydroelectric facilities along uh, in that area. They used to try to export power all the way into the desert southwest. There, there was such a huge surplus of that capacity that there was a lot of load in you know the western United States and southern uh, western United States that was served that way. So a lot of the infrastructure there is actually built around bringing in uh, that hydroelectric generation to serve and displacing thermal generation, natural gas fired or coal fired generation in, in the southwest. So that's been done, and the, the economics win that way this is you know that that was what it has been now what we've seen in in the west in western united states and this is going to be true western uh, western provinces in canada as well is you know population growth economic growth energy consumption expansion and so now we have uh, we got to a point where we're not putting in new you know hydro facilities to the same magnitude that we were before and we have very large load increases because we have large population changes and, you know, we have migration internal. And so there, there's a, you know, it doesn't work exactly the way it did before, but places in the desert Southwest that, you know, they've got other kinds of natural resources, uh, very abundant natural resources in the form of, you know, solar radiance that they are able to collect and harvest. And there's different types of technologies around that. And in Texas, you know, we have the same thing um, throughout lots of the mid-continent. And this is certainly true in Alberta and Pincher Creek area all the way south is, we have a large capacity to capture wind-based uh, energy production. And so I think Texas, the last time I looked, is the fourth largest producer of wind in the world. Wow. Um, uh, Texas is behind, I think it's like uh, China, Germany, and the United States. And then Texas is in the United States numbers. So it's, you know, it's a huge, it's a huge portion of our generation infrastructure. And we've had this very interesting thing that's happened over the course of the last several years, uh, really in the last year and a half, we built and there are plans for gargantuan quantities of grid scale solar facilities that have been built and that are on the books to be built within the next you know, 24 months. 
And so for us, we're looking at an infrastructure here where, you know, maybe upwards of 50 or 60 percent of our of our power generation infrastructure is renewable. And you know, this is the market is wow. you know, part of part of that is because of the, the capacity from uh, uh, you know, the natural resources here. But some of it's because, uh, you know, there's we have space and, you know, there's a dynamic market in place and people can you know, put these things and there's, there's a margin to be made doing that. There's an economic incentive for that behavior to exist. And it's not done through a mandate. There is we have a renewable portfolio standard that was introduced as part of uh, the competitive uh, markets in 2002, but we're so far beyond that that that's not really a driver in, in why we've done these things. We've done these things because, you know, there's an economic incentive to build these types of facilities in lieu of some of the other kinds of traditional generation. So it's it's interesting to see this changing. Yeah. And like, so the population fundamentally shifts, the consumption patterns and the types of consumption fundamentally shift. Yet, as you mentioned, all the way throughout, right, the storage is not possible, or at least not possible at the scale required. Like there is no efficient storage method. So generation and efficient generation and low long-term impact generation, ideally, I mean, nuclear, possibly one of the more, you know, like viable as far as longevity and efficiency, but, you know, two words, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island. Right, I guess that technically is four words, but yeah, like we've we've seen the, the the negative side when there's an issue, Fukushima, you know, other things like there are enough instances have occurred, but one would say Chernobyl aside, that it, it would be the equivalent of the fact that for long people in the, in the 80s, people didn't get in the water because they saw Jaws. Like right. the reality versus the belief was not aligned uh, in the impact of nuclear energy and what it could do. But on the consumer side, there's there's an unfortunate growth in some areas that people are acutely aware of, right? So like Bitcoin and, and these other uh, types of cryptocurrencies that require high power for complex computational work. So big win on like creating new ecosystems and new technologies and new ways that people can you know, do things, but the a relatively unknown understanding of the impact other than what makes the news, you know? Right. And so people read and they say, oh, Bitcoin bad because it uses massive amounts of power for every coin minted. Like statistics are thrown around and they end up on infographics. So we, we see big things, right? And like humans see big numbers. That's what we do. That's how we sell things is we put big numbers in front of them. But then that scares them away from taking local action. And so, you know, Justin, you're super close to a lot of this and you've seen like the, the real human impact and the real human understanding of how they can take action, just even at their local bill, right? And there's like in their local community, what, what do you see as the way forward with big, scary ideas and big, amazing ideas? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things I think is so interesting is, and I understand, you know, there are people that are true believers and, you know, that, you know, people don't make an impact on the atmosphere and, that, you know, there's a hoax aspect to some of this stuff. 
And there are other people that believe that, you know, we, we literally have a matter of, you know, single digits years to, you know, save the planet from, uh, you know, catastrophic issues. And, and, and I understand that. And there, there are definitely, um, you know, perhaps reasons to listen to, to all these different viewpoints and, and to understand some of these things. I, I tend to be a slightly more pragmatic about this. And I honestly, I don't really, I don't sweat it because I think, I think maybe I'm too big of a believer in our ability um, to, to come up with solutions. And, and what I see is, you know, we're still missing a battery or some type of energy storage solution that's really viable at the grid scale. And I don't know that lithium ion is really the path. Uh, to me, it seems like that makes sense in transportation, you know, is the best of the best today and with today's technology that's been commercialized because it has pretty good power to weight. And, you know, that's, that's you know, conducive for transportation types of, of applications. But if you have a big battery that's sitting out, you know, in a field or in a location somewhere, what it weighs doesn't matter. So right. there's all, I think there needs to be a different kind of technology. A lot of the ones that I'm seeing, they're grossing up, you know, some of these transportation types of technologies. And that may very well be the right answer. I was reading some very interesting uh, information about, uh, one of these professors at MIT had developed, um, basically it's a, it's a molten metal, uh, battery setup that you can use a lot of, you know, I think it's got calcium and there's some molten salt as uh, you keep your anode and cathode, uh, separated. And, you know, I think that, uh, you, you maintain that separation by the, the molten salts, but you're able to harvest, you know, the, the feedstock that you need for these cells locally, and you're going to get a calcium out of the soils and, uh, I don't remember if it was iron or what the other metals that they were using, but there, you can pick them up basically in any in any site anywhere in the world. Those are the types of technologies played out over a longer period of time that will change everything. Those are the kind of the true game changer types of things. But if I look at it, the historical electricity business outside of nuclear, and I definitely want to come back to nuclear, has been very different than let's just say telecommunications. So if we look at telecom, if we're talking about, you know, what, how does, what's that business model? And it's really kind of a business model around, you know, we're putting fiber in the ground and then we have, you know, I know they used to have like wave multipliers and all this infrastructure, right? So it, it's a lot of initial capital expenditure, but your variable cost to deliver data is very, very, very low. Right. Almost, almost nothing, right? The electricity generation business historically kind of was not exactly the opposite, but it's really kind of moved more towards the opposite, you know, from the 90s until we started getting into wind and some of these other things. And that was one where if I looked at the cost of goods on a wholesale, at the wholesale market, and I tried to back into where that was coming from, there's a very, very, very large proportion of these costs that are attributable to fuel. And so certainly there's a capital uh, you know, investment that's made in infrastructure. But if we take the wires and the delivery piece outside of that, for power generation, if I were to look at the cost for a power plant, even amortized with a reasonable return on equity for 
building a coal plant or building a brand new state-of-the-art natural gas super clean power plant i think a lot of it's going to be in fuel there's a heavy proportion of what the annual production is going to be of those costs are going to be in fuel and this is why i think in the long run what will happen if we can bring a confluence of some kind of a storage solution when it could be flywheels it could be batteries you know we could be kinetic to electric or chemical to electric um I think what's happening is we're getting to a point where we're, we're having these massive advances in material science that, that are reducing the installed costs for some of these renewable technologies. Right. And so if, and if, they, if we can get those, those installed costs down, they will be competitive on economics without any form of subsidization over these other traditional sources of, of power generation. I think... I'm a believer in in the innovation and the things that folks are working on today that whether we want to push this through regulatory fiat, we want to do this through political fiat, I don't sweat it because I think what will happen is that these technologies will, I think they will win in, in, the, in the longest you know, run or however we get there. It's just a function of us being able to integrate and commercialize some of these advancements that we're seeing in some of these these other disciplines and i see you know from the outside looking in on you know kind of the state of of what's happening in the material sciences world is the pace of that change it seems like it's continuing to accelerate as well so it's and so i'm very very hopeful um that that we we will get there no matter We'll get there on economics or we'll get there through regulatory fiat. I think that if we get there through political or regulatory fiat, we, the, the probability that we have a misallocation of, of, of taxpayer dollars or maybe some funds that might be higher in that kind of scheme where we're trying to push that before it's kind of ready for prime time. But I think it will, I think it will emerge anyway. Well, and it, development is happening at a pace that can't be regulated. So that is, there's a, such a beautiful freedom that's occurring and that people are, are really trying to solve these problems and they're continuing to do so in academia, in research and bringing them to the market in peer review, in real life experimentation. So that when it gets to the point of like commercializing and producing it and then regulating it, it's too late. The, you know, even with electric cars, where we saw the great battle to like lock it down. In fact, there's a famous, uh, I think it was even a movie, like a documentary was made in the 90s about a fellow who'd created an electric car in Kitchener, Waterloo, in Ontario, just outside of Toronto. And they said he couldn't get it road approved because there was no way to measure the emissions because it didn't have an exhaust pipe. And so he it was illegal for him to take it on the public roads because it could not be a licensed vehicle. And he's like, this is, it doesn't make any sense. You're telling me I can't do this. I've done it. It's already here. That has no zero emissions because it has zero emissions. Of course you can't measure the emissions. But a decade later, it became the next big wave of creation and commercialization. And then now where people were like, ah, you know, Tesla, a bunch of upstart weirdos, you know, like that's just crazy. Now every major car manufacturer is is signing up for, uh, you know, electric only fleets within a reasonable number of years. And so it's it will happen. 
Well, what I think I'm, is... I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be able to get to the market fast so that we can't stop it. Yeah, and I, what I'll tell you is that we have this tendency because we know it better to really focus on, let's just say, North, Ame North American centric, how our right. markets work and how we're going to take these, you know, we're, we're a thought leader in these spaces and we're going to solve these problems and then we're going to sort of teach the rest of the world or maybe in continental Europe. But the reality is that we have these types of issues that you're dealing with. We have these regulatory burdens and some of these these other issues that I'm I'm will not be remotely surprised to see true innovation in these spaces happen in other parts of the developing world. Because if they're looking for the solution and the solution they're looking for best outcomes, then there's no there's no incumbency to wade through and to destroy or to, you know, restack or reprioritize, you have fewer barriers to implementation in lots of other parts of the world. And I, I think that's, you know, we talked about nuclear, nuclear is such an interesting animal here. You know, I think if anyone who's in that space would probably have to at least begrudgingly tell you that, okay, commercial nuclear power it's kind of not really all about power some of it was you know part of a weapons program and you know they're, they're it's not exclusively right. about making making electricity and so if you think about it you know the when people think about uh nuclear energy it would be kind of like thinking about um uh, you know like a pinto like if you if if a car was a pinto like no no advancements that's just kind of what it was, whether it's a pressurized vessel or a boiling water reactor. It's there's so much room for other kinds of innovation and kind of where the state of the art can be. But we think about nuclear as this is this is the way all our existing commercial nuclear reactors look. And they're like 1970s Pintos, like they're just that way. They're just um, and so we don't really have any concept of, OK, well, yeah, it could be, you know, a Ferrari, you know, there are other kinds of cars. Like we can do these yeah. things different. We don't have to be stuck and the stakes are kind of high all the way through to, you know, thorium reactors or other kinds of, of, of technologies that, you know, will require tremendous amounts of time and tremendous amounts of capital investment to prove to be viable. But, you know, those have, you know, a different, absolutely different kind of proliferation risk associated with them. They don't really result in having these long-lived uh, waste problems. So there's better solutions that are there. And I think that this is a place where it, it may very well be that that uh, the developing world actually becomes the leader in that space, just out of necessity. Yeah, it's another good example of that, ironic enough, is like mobile payment. Uh, so we've struggled with even getting bloody chip cards working in the United States. I came from Canada. We had chip cards for a decade, like well over a decade. It was standard fare, and the the innovation had occurred, and the and the application of the model was simple because there was no previous barrier. There was no infrastructure to fight. Right. Getting it into the United States banking infrastructure was not about the fact that you couldn't make cards with chips in them. It was that the existing technologies that were, the entire system was wrapped around had, were so entrenched in non like, the technology that wouldn't work 
that that was the slowdown. That's why it took much longer to implement. And, you know, there, I remember seeing years ago, again, like 20 years ago, uh, a whole documentary about uh, the system called Mpeza, which was a mobile payment platform, which was in, in South Africa, where they have no physical infrastructure. Everything is mobile. So you would land in Africa, you would go to the airport, you would buy a phone. It was just like a burner phone and you would load it with these Mpeza you know, and you just go to a vendor and like a literally a street cart vendor would sell you a body scarf or a, a you know, a, a, a piece of meat. And they would just have their Mpeza account number and you would just type it in. It, they would get the transaction and they would be paid. And there was this beautiful decentralized mobile payment system had been developed out of necessity that we had never been presented with. Sure. We didn't have that necessity. We have all this infrastructure. So we're like, ah, we're good. And now when you try to implement this stuff, people are like, oh, you know, like we feel we're first to the market. Apple, of course, is like, well, we're proud to announce the first ever of whatever. And you're like, no, 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 it's, <laughs> it's been in seven parts of the world for decades. It's just, you've made it shiny. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on that. But uh, it, it is funny to watch. Well, I hate going back to telecom, but, you know, I would, I would uh, lucky enough, you know, about 10 years ago, I was in Jakarta in Indonesia. And it was interesting, one of the folks that we were dealing with they actually had a telecommunications, a, a mobile business there. And, you know, it, it struck me at the time, you know, in the United States, if we're trying to get these remote, you know, when we did it, we're trying to like tie everybody together. We're stringing copper wire out, you know, um, yeah. our, our telecom infrastructure with these kind of legacy technologies. And these guys, you know, get connectivity out to the, you know, the most remote parts of Indonesia because they just they, they bypass the technology. They leapfrogged into the mobile world. They didn't really have to deal with any of the tuition or any of the brain damage associated with the perfunctory things that we still use. And, you know, because it's there, we still are highly dependent upon a lot of our copper infrastructure in, in our telecommunications as well. So. These are, that's exactly your point, I think is very, very correct that, that when there isn't an incumbency in place or you're not having to sort of overcome something, the best solutions in some of these other parts of the world are able to emerge quickly. And so that, that I do think that those guys will end up being able to show other parts of the world how, how, to, how to, you know, integrate these technologies and how to get some of this stuff done. Yeah. And it, I mean, as you said, there's a very interesting point of the fact that you know, uranium, of course, like uranium 238 or whatever the, you know, being the more common version and what it takes like 237 to do power generation and then to go further where it becomes for nuclear weaponry, you know, high grade uranium. The, the fact that you, one is too close to the other, it, you know, when they see, you know, building for nuclear power generation, they almost think like, well, it's like saying I'm building a house out of AK-47s. I'm building a house. See, like it just right. so happens that I'm using AK-47s as bricks. Right. That's unfortunately the comparison that you get stuck with. And there are parts of the world where if given that access and opportunity may go a little bit far with the refinement of their uranium. And uh, it's it's a tough one because I think it's there is such a potential for it, but and that's why there's there are other types of nuclear energy technologies. People have been talking about thorium reactors for years. 
they built one at Oak Ridge National Labs that ran. So it's, you know, there needs to be a lot more development, but it doesn't have the same proliferation risk. It's passively safe. So right. there, there, there are better, there are better ways. Like if, you know, we don't need to be dealing with the 1970 Pinto, like stuff has gotten better. We have, you know, ABS, we have, you know, airbags, we have like, there are other things that need to be brought into these, into the equation for us to think about it. But people's thought process around what nuclear means is, you know, it, it's not a good example of what it should be or what it could be. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, I think the there's an interesting advantage to having history with it and also an, an advantage to having no history. And I think those that's a beautiful combination, like you paired with somebody who has no preconceptions when given the right way to basically walk together and ideate. You could come up with fantastic things because you have an understanding of what got us here, but you almost need somebody who's free of that encumbrance. And that's why there's neat opportunities with people who have no background. I mean, like I, you look at auto, great example, right? I mean, I remember learning how to drive in like a big truck, which was like manual steering three in a tree. Like right. you say three in a tree and nobody would know what I'm even talking about these days. Right. <laughs> like, like, is that the self-driving thing? Like, no, no, definitely not. Right. It's, right. we were as far from self-driving as you could get. <laughs> For sure. But I, there's a, I think a need for history to be used as a lesson, not as a guide where no we question. can learn from it, but not have it produce the rules of the next thing. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, you know, it allows us to not pay that tuition again of learning yeah. the same things or going down something that, that we know is a bad path or that we know is a problem. And so that, that's why it is important to keep track of how do we get here? What are the good things that happened? What are the bad things that happened? Are the bad things that happened still relevant? Is that possible? Are the good things still relevant? Is that still possible? You know, knowing how you got here helps you skip. It helps you leapfrog uh, in, in that iteration and that, in that ideation around, you know, the, the you know, more relevant solutions that, that we need to see. For sure. It's amazing. I think even when you think of like content creators, I saw somebody who was like a, a, a Mr. Beast. He's a famous YouTuber. And he said like what makes what made him really be able to leapfrog in his own capability was the fact that he found other people that were creators. And it's so much easier that you could just have an idea instead of you grinding it out in the dark, kind of like figuring out, trying, experimenting, learning. Imagine that you could be in parallel with somebody else who's doing it. And then you could say like, Hey, I tried this and it didn't work. Did it work for you? Oh, it did work for me, but I also did this. And like the innovation capability of combining, like you said, this sort of reduce the tuition of that's needed in order to get there, but also take those lessons and immediately inject them back into the process. It's uh, it's systems thinking at its core, really. Right. Like it's, taking the lesson, re-injecting it, adjusting the model, measuring the outputs. But we, for whatever reason, you know, there's, we struggle, which I suppose is great. There's opportunity for new innovators, for new creators, but uh, every once in a while, you just want to grab somebody and shake them saying like, this has been done somewhere. We've, right. We shouldn't be trying this from scratch. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, your earlier point in the, you know, as it dovetails into that is equally as important. I, 
if you think about all of the research that's done and all the, you know, you, you bring these ideas and these people that can have a similar mindset, you know, I think that's why we have the great universities and the great research institutions, you know, you, you're able to bring people together and, you know, there's, uh, you know, some things in the air, you know, innovations in the air, um, you know, it's free thought, free process in the air. And I think you get these, you know, one plus one equals maybe not three, but you know, two point something kinds of outcomes yeah. just because of, you know, the potential for collaboration at the same time, you know, I've seen a lot of folks that have a purely academic uh, interest in some of these things really struggle to commercialize these technologies as well. So you have to be able to bring the industry back in too to say, okay, that's beautiful from a design perspective, but it won't work because of X and Y and Z. But if we did this and this, so I think that's why we, you know, we were talking earlier about that scaffolding. It's these little parts and pieces that eventually you know we will stand on the shoulders of those that came before us on, on helping us from this scaffold and someone or some ones or some you know groups will start the process of tying together all these things you know for the betterment of the rest of us it's uh it's an exciting time and and i think it's a Penn Gillette, who's a magician of the Penn and Teller uh, duo and, and and i love the saying that he says is two things are invariably true that the world is getting better and that everybody thinks it's getting worse, right? Like by every measure of, uh, of, of society, or by many measures, at least most measures of society, we are gaining in, in what we have, but there's an unfortunate focus on the negative. No one clicks an article because of good news anymore. And so I, but I feel good and I feel excited. I wanna go build something right now, Justin, you've excited me about, a lot of potential. So, Let's and I got to give a shout out again, Energy Ogre. I'll, I'll have links below. I'll make sure people should check it out. Uh, and, and you know, it's been a real great pleasure to spend time just talking through this stuff. This is where the, I love this format so much better because, you know, you can really explore and think and it, these thought processes then go to just about anything you do, which is kind of nice. Well, I've enjoyed it a ton, and I hope that your your viewers and listeners got something out of it too. Um, you know, hopefully, demystified the electricity market a little bit, and uh, you know, if nothing else, maybe make it a little bit easier for folks to sleep at night. So, knowing that we're we're probably on the right track. That's it. That's absolutely it. So, Justin, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the uh, best way they can do so? Probably the easiest is to just come check us out on our website. Uh, there's a way to contact us through the website. Um, if you have questions, we try to put, you know, other types of informative free information out there. It may not really apply to lots of people that are not in Texas and one of these competitive areas. Um, but some of the bigger tips and things that we put on our blog really should be applicable into lots of people in, in lots of different parts of the country or the world for that matter. So, um, again, love, love being able to sit and speak with, with your listeners and your viewers. And it's been a ton of fun for me and I really appreciate it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Justin.